0: Hello, and welcome back to Think Yourself Healthy Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Barbieri. Before we dive into this episode, I just want to remind you that if you take a screenshot that you're listening and tag us on Instagram, we'll send you a 15% off discount for the eight-week Retrain Your Brain program. Just take a screenshot and tag me at Heather Barbieri RDN. Thanks for listening, and let's get right to it. Hello, everybody. On today's episode of Think Yourself Healthy, today we have special returning guest, Sarah Korjnevsky. Sarah has had the opportunity to be on the podcast before. Um, I'm so excited to have her back. She's a registered dietitian who definitely thinks outside the box, much like myself. So I'm really excited to pick your brain and talk all things SIBO today, specifically Um, a lot of the myths that are associated with SIBO. But Sarah, before we dive into all of that, would you like to take a little moment to introduce yourself to the audience and kind of what qualifies you to have this conversation today?
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm Sarah Korzynevsky, registered dietitian, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. Um, Have had my own private practice for many, many years now. Uh, Work mainly with women. Um, it's kind of evolved over the years, but I have really come to the realization that without the gut being in a good spot and the nervous system being in a good spot, pretty much nothing else can heal. So mm-hmm. those are the big areas that I tend to focus a lot with clients on. And I can work with clients one-on-one, but I also have a Heal Your Gut for Good group program um, as two ways that people can work with me now. Excellent. Well, you and I
0: both are not the average dietitian in terms of the approaches that we take. I know myself that in school, I didn't learn anything about nervous system regulation and digestion and how all of that impacts our ability to break down and absorb. And I didn't learn any of that. So I myself, these were things that I had to self-teach outside of that whole discipline, uh, because ultimately, all of these more ho- holistic modalities, they aren't accepted in the clinical Western med- you know, medical system, especially when it comes to addressing nutrition challenges. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Yes, most definitely. And um, yeah, there's a lot of people that are very, maybe set in their ways and think that, you know, their way is the best way, and so tend to fight back on certain things. So, of course, that can be challenging to navigate, but there is no one path to mm-hmm.
0: health. Right. So, I'm curious do you identify as still being a dietitian, or do you kind of identify outside of that realm these days?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think being a dietitian has some benefits <laughs> to some degree, but I think sometimes people come to me saying, oh, you're going to be able to tell me exactly what I need to eat. And like, mm-hmm. they think I, I can just look at them or assess them and give them the exact prescriptive diet that they need. And that that's also the only thing that they need. And then they can, you know, go on their way and live perfectly healthy lives. So mm-hmm. sometimes that association doesn't feel right to me, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, I think if anything, I would say like I'm a functional medicine practitioner because mm-hmm. I think that can be all-encompassing. But even within the term functional medicine, people practice differently. Like mm-hmm. to me, there's nothing functional about simply running labs and putting people on supplement protocols and like one-size-fits-all elimination diets. Mm-hmm. like. But that's sometimes what the functional realm has become, you know. Right. So I don't know. It's like <laughs> I don't know that there is a really good term or yeah. Scripture. I know this
0: is this is something I've definitely struggled with over the last many years of being self-employed, um, having my own practice, working somewhat in the clinical world, somewhat in you know just one-on-one private. And so I kind of just transitioned more to accepting that I practice lifestyle medicine. (laughs) Like it's not, you know, it's really, it's addressing all of the factors that are going to impact how well our body uses food and exercise um, efficiently. So yeah, it's getting getting crazy out there in terms of like how to navigate and how to identify and what to call ourselves. And I know initially for me, letting go of the attachment to the title, uh, you know, was a big thing. And the more that I just stand in my own power, the less I need to have to have those credentials to know that the work I'm doing is making an impact out there on the world. And so that's the most important Mm -hmm. thing for me. But so I'd really like to chat with you about this thing called SIBO. So for myself, um, post-COVID, SIBO is something that has um, occurred and it's been a chronic battle over the last several months. And I know this is something that you personally have experienced yourself and had to work Mm -hmm. through. And so mm-hmm. you, had made, you had made a post um, a while back that really caught my attention around the myths around SIBO and, and some of the approaches that we're encouraged to take and how these mm-hmm. are not necessarily helping us and they might be just contributing to the problem. So thank mm-hmm. you for agreeing to come on today to have this conversation. So in your words, can you describe to the listener what SIBO is? Most people have no clue. What is SIBO?
1: Yeah, in short, it stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So your digestive system is made up of many parts, uh, one of them being the small intestine. It's, It's higher up kind of in the digestive tract, you know, right after the stomach. And the small intestine isn't really, you know, thought of as maybe as an important section of the digestive system. But Um, The more I learn about it, the more I find that to be untrue. So the the thought process behind SIBO is most of our gut bacteria should be in the large intestine, which is a bit further down, about hundreds of trillions of bacteria. And the small intestine should be mm, relatively sterile. Maybe there's like 10,000 bacteria in there and then obviously the stomach is where all of your acid should be so it's 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 there's not really a lot of bacteria in there so typically what happens is the environment becomes right to where bacteria starts to overgrow in the small intestine whether it's quote unquote bad bacteria or pathogenic bacteria or it could even be good bacteria. Like it's it's too much of a of a good thing in the wrong location in the digestive tract. And mm-hmm. now the thing about it is is SIBO, there's also like CFO, which is small intestinal fungal overgrowth. So like SIBO can often more be about fungus and even parasite infestation than it is just about bacteria, which in part is what makes it I think a little bit more difficult sometimes to treat because we're like treating the wrong thing. We're not addressing what's causing, you know, this all Mm -hmm. to to happen, the the environment, you know, that it's causing this to happen. But then we're focusing on bacteria when it might not necessarily either be a bacterial problem or just be a bacterial problem. Okay. So that's interesting. I'm curious. So how would one
0: diagnose and differentiate between it being a bacteria and it being a fungus? I know that typically to confirm and diagnose SIBO, one has to do something like a hydrogen test that evaluates how much hydrogen is being produced to say, okay, this is abnormal. There's definitely a problem here. So how does one differentiate that?
1: Yeah. And that's the trick. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Like I really no longer use breath tests in practice Mm -hmm. typically because, you know, they're not the most pleasant things to do because usually you even have to follow like a really strict kind of bland diet for a few days leading up to it. Um, They are like labs are tools. Like Mm -hmm. I think people rely way too heavily on labs. They think if I just run this lab I'm going to know my root causes and I'm going to be able to treat it with, you know, medications or supplements and I'll be off mm-hmm. on my way. But like labs don't really assess root causes. They kind of assess more the results, you know, of right. the deeper root causes, but yeah, I mean, so SIBO breath tests can be hit or miss. Like mm-hmm. they're not 100% accurate if it comes back positive. You know, yeah, the likelihood of it you know being a factor especially if a lot of pre- you know symptoms are present is is probably good but it could have false negatives and false positives and mm-hmm. it's it is it's only assessing the the gases made by bacteria so if if you have the cfo then a cbo breath test isn't really going to yield you know, results. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also another, you could also have, um, like sulfide, you know, uh, gas. Mm -hmm. So that is not something that they assess on a SIBO breath test. It's typically only, you know, the hydrogen or methane. Right. So that could also be a factor, but then again, it's not necessarily telling you if there are other problems, because Mm -hmm. if someone has SIBO, to me, the chances of having like other, uh, you know, just microbial imbalances in the gut are pretty good. Like, it's not telling you, you know, what foods you should eat. And like, like it's just, it's limited. So mm-hmm. really in my experience, a I like to use energy testing as much as possible with clients, which is probably a topic for another time. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, I all, you also want to be a good clinician and really assess their symptoms. But at the end of the day, I also think we sometimes hyper focus on getting a diagnosis, where really, in part, you know, we should also be starting with a lot of the foundational things. Because again, if our nervous systems are highly dysregulated, as many are, you know, if our cells because health begins at a cellular level. So if our cells don't have you know, nutrients they need, if we're continuing to eat foods that are fueling inflammation and feeding of bacterial and fungal and whatever issues in the gut, and we're not sleeping and we're not getting adequate sunlight and like all of those basic things that a lot of people are not really focusing on, then a lot of the interventions we might do to address something like sibo and hyperfocus on it again might either yield temporary you know relief or just not be effective at all
0: mhm yeah no that's
1: that makes a lot of sense there's so ultimately
0: can we kind of dive into what are some of the causes that would create this environment that would allow for the bacteria and the fungus to overgrow or to overpopulate?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I always kind of describe it as a domino effect because the thing about root causes, I I think there's a little bit of a false belief that like SIBO is a root cause. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really not, again, it's the result of Deeper issues going on. But SIBO can be caused by things like poor vagal tone. So there's a vagus nerve that runs from our brain to our gut. And, you know, again, if we're under more stress, it's more prone to being affected by trauma and like all of those things. Then it kind of is a factor at slowing digestion down, which can then, you know, disrupt gut motility or how fast or slow things move through the gut, which. Again, other things can affect motility, but I kind of describe that as like if you're chronically constipated, it's like stagnant water. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to a lake that has stagnant water, it probably looks like it has weird things growing on it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But they tell you in the wilderness when you're lost, you need to find running water, right? Because running water is less likely to grow bacterial. Same thing in your gut. If things are not moving, bacteria has more opportunity to grow or any sort of microbes. And then again, that stuff can start creeping up into that small intestine. Mm -hmm. So, mortality is a factor, but then uh, low stomach acid, which is all too common. I Mm -hmm. mean, gosh, I wouldn't be surprised if 90 plus percent of the population had low stomach acid and it's like all the people dealing with heartburn, all the which is really potentially low stomach acid, not too much. All yeah. you know, the acids we take and yeah. the stress we're under and minerals affect stomach acid. I mean the list goes on even with just that,
0: right? Right. And it's astounding to me having conversations with individuals who complain about having GERDs, you know, acid reflux, stomach issues and how many of them have chronically been on anti-acid, proton, pump inhibitors. And these are not long-term solutions. And all nope. they're doing is just contributing to the problem, not supporting you know the solution. Yeah. And so it baffles me when I say to someone, the reason you potentially have heartburn is because you actually have a alkaline, too alkaline of stomach acid. They're like, say what? No, yes. that's not what my doctor says. Doctor says it's acid. It's like, well, right. no, it's not. And so, so yeah, to that point, that's one of the first places where we're missing out on the protective measures once the acid gets out of balance. Now we've opened up an opportunistic environment for the bacteria to survive in the stomach, dumping into the small intestine. And then the other thing that contributes to that is most people don't chew their food appropriately. They're so yep. stressed out, they're chomping on the go and they're one, two, yep. swallow. And now yep. we've bypassed all of these really beneficial mechanical digestion processes. We've missed out on the stomach acid and its support. And now we've got large particles of un, you know, undigested foods sitting in the small intestine that provide an opportunistic
1: environment
0: for yep. the pathogens
1: residing. Yeah. I mean, really what's happening with SIBO is your upper gut, that small intestine is fermenting. There's fermentation. It's Mm a compost pile in there. And not only does that leave room for bugs to, you know, grow, but it also is a big part of what contributes to things like leaky gut, which, Mm -hmm. you know, that increased intestinal permeability. It's like, that's the whole domino effect. It's like, we got to constantly look upstream as to okay well stomach acid is low well why is that happening you know even if we like a lot of people want to blame h pylori on it which yeah eh, i kind of i'm not so much in that camp anymore but um Uh but but then why did i get h pylori like my gut should be regulating these things well and it's because we became a weak host Mm -hmm. because we're stressed and we were dealing with trauma of all kinds and again the whole lifestyle factor our diets like i just always think about diet and like how many of the foods that we're currently eating that weren't even available even like 20 years ago you know well
0: i mean the question the question is this how many people are actually eating real food In my opinion, I think more people are eating boxed chemicals that lack nutrition, water, fiber, life at a cellular level. And so that's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. You know, what's happened to the food industry since the mid 60s when policy around agricultural practice changed and that opened up commodity foods that Mm -hmm. then supported being able to produce these very inexpensive ingredients that are not ideal for the body. Yeah. We have just, you know, we've gotten into a really slippery slope. And honestly, it's really quite frightening as to where we go from here if people don't start taking action immediately to be sustainable, especially around nutrition, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there, you know, there is like a lot of people, there's so much conflicting information out there. Like this person says this is good. And this person says that is good. And again, I'm not a big believer in a one size fits all when it comes to Mm -hmm. diet. When we're even trying to heal, especially things like the gut what you need to eat now or what might benefit you now will very likely be different than what you can tolerate down the road. So it's also an evolution. You know, it's not I right. gotta find exactly what I need to eat right now. Right. And again, there's no lab test that we can run, no food sensitivity test that's gonna tell you exactly what that looks like. So right. with fiber like some people need less fiber in mm-hmm. while they're dealing with bacteria because fiber can mm-hmm. feed not only good bugs, but bad bugs, too. Or if their gut is inflamed, that small intestine, you know, 90% of your nutrients get absorbed there. It's where 60% of digestion takes place. It has very different needs than the large intestine. Mm-hmm. And the small. if your small intestine is inflamed, fiber can be just like sandpaper in there. You yeah. know, so you yeah. know, it's finding what does eating to reduce inflammation is a key, a key initial step. But what does that look like for you? Where you right. and your gut are at now, right? And then, you know that might change. And this is something that I've definitely
0: had to play around and navigate over the last year and you know some odd months um, since all of this happened. And right now, the current diet that I'm on is not like as a dietitian, I'm like, no, this mm-hmm. is not the diet that I would be promoting and so proud right. to everyone I'm doing. But it's necessary in order for me to uh, control some of those negative consequences that are occurring from putting food in my body. So right now I'm following a very low residue, very low insoluble diet. It's yeah. very challenging because I have to... You know, basically puree all of my foods, and then after I puree everything, then I have to strain them to remove any additional fiber. Mm-hmm. So, predominantly, I'm getting mostly just soluble fiber right now. Um, yeah. But anyway, it's the average yeah. person. There's no way in hell they would do this for themselves you know they'd be like ah, i'll just take the pill
1: <laughs> right i know well and that's the thing again i i try to be very open-minded as much as possible and i'm kind of in the same boat as you is like i would have never in a million years in my past ever thought i'd be suggesting certain you know styles right. or you know ways yes, of eating yes. people, but like carnivore yes. for example yeah was it sounds crazy, especially if people don't really know it or understand it. And I'm not, you know, again, not saying it's something everybody needs to do or anything like that. And part of what I like to do is help clients, you know, meet them where they're at and like, Mm -hmm. where do you feel like you want to start? Like what feels good to you? But like some people's guts are such a disaster that it save It could save them, you know, again, it's not something I really, would want someone to have to do for long periods of time. And it, it's when it comes to like, recommending a diet, which is a word I don't really like anyway, I always say yeah, same. The healing intervention, right? Um, right? As short of amount of time as possible to allow for healing to take place so mm-hmm. that one can start to diversify and figure out what, you know, where their right. fiber sweet spot is, or which, you know, particular Plant foods they feel like they do best with, and that's going to vary, you know, from right. person to person, and things like As- that. But yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I
0: and I think that it's important to mention that this is where working with a trained healthcare professional, specifically someone who is um, specializes in nutrition, like a registered dietitian, nutritionist, um, can be so beneficial because if someone sees this, you know, carnivore diet is beneficial for SIBO and they go, okay, I'm just going to eat meat and they're eating all kinds of sausages and deli meat and bacon and all of this is just contributing to the problem. It's not necessarily supporting the problem. So that's going to create a lot of confusion for the individual, right? But I thought this was... So I highly, highly encourage anyone listening who is struggling and thinks, oh, maybe I should try that. Please connect with a trained professional who can help support you in identifying what's going to be in your best interest to minimize consequences. But let me ask you this question. So an individual possibly listening is thinking, Fermentation in my small intestine. How would I know if I'm having fermentation in my small intestine? Mm-hmm. Can you tell the listeners what are some of the symptoms they might be experiencing if they are having this fermentation in the sure. in the small intestine? Yeah.
1: Bloating is a big one. Um, they maybe have a lot of food intolerances, especially to plant foods. Uh, constipation mm-hmm. or diarrhea. Uh, excessive belching, especially after meals, or like excessive gas, especially if it's like painful or really smelly. Um, If they've been diagnosed with IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, um, sometimes heartburn, uh, brain fog, even fatigue, because again, the body, the the cells need nutrients to produce energy. Um, Stomach pain or cramps. That was a big one for me. (laughs) <laughs> I'd eat a mm-hmm. big old salad and my stomach would hurt for a long time. Hurt? And I know yeah. oh, hours, yeah, you know, hours, hours. Um, yeah. Maybe been diagnosed with mast cell issues, which is sometimes hard to get a diagnosis for. Mm,
0: um, very hard. Mental,
1: yeah. Even mental health struggle struggles like anxiety or depression. Cause there's that big gut brain connection and, you know, not only can nervous system dysregulation impact the gut, but the gut can be a stressor on the nervous system too. So if you, Uh you know, really feel like your nervous system is out of balance, that could be, you know, part of the clue too. So, you know, we don't have to have necessarily obvious gut symptoms to be having gut problems.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So great. I just recently saw a statistic, a statistic
0: where they were talking about diagnosis around uh, celiac disease Mm -hmm. and how, 80% of celiac diagnoses do not have any GI symptoms and they have all brain, mental health, cognitive function Mm -hmm. symptoms. I thought that was a really fascinating statistic because Mm -hmm. that's a huge, that's a huge number. 80% like, wow. And unfortunately with, with the way that our modern day times and existing of existence, we take everything that's happening up here and we just chalk it to, I'm just so busy. I'm just, I I didn't get enough sleep. You know, we're, we're making all of these excuses when there could be something really, really significant that's underlying that is contributing Mm -hmm. to that chronic foggy brain and Mm -hmm. inability to recall information, all the things. So that's a great point.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or a genetic thing like, everyone in my family has anxiety or depression or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And, you know, that's such a small part of it.
0: Yeah. You know, that genetic piece always gets me um, when, it, when people are always talking about, well, but it's genetic. And it's like, well, yeah, there's a component that plays to genetics. Like, I'll just give you an example. I had a client um, recently who comes from many, many generations of obesity, And this individual also had some other factors that put them in that genetically high risk demographic. And so she just chalked it up to, well, it's, you know, it's my color. It's my family history. I'm just going to be obese and have diabetes for the rest of my life. Right. And and it's like, well, no, let's take a step back you were indoctrinated into an environment that had many generations of very poor lifestyle practices that have contributed to any kind of genetic disposition becoming favorable for a disease state. And so Mm -hmm. I think that we really have to help individuals understand, How important the environment piece is because that's where we're empowered. That's what we have control over that can either help, you know, reduce our risk of developing these any unfortunate disease or putting us in a position to exacerbate those.
1: Yeah. And then also being able to teach the next generations (laughs) to not, you know, let these things affect them like they've been affecting us.
0: Absolutely. That's a great
1: exercise. Excellent
0: point. Mm-hmm. So, for the individual who thinks, "Okay, maybe there is something going on." I've been chronically stressed since the womb. This makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, where, what kind of key considerations should we take into, um, you know, account when it comes to? Trying to heal that SIBO. Does a person need to go and get a diagnosis and do the testing and do the medicine treatment? Or are there other potential solutions to get us moving in the right direction to get this under control?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously it's up to the individual what they want to do. But, you know, to me, that wouldn't be my first go to because, like I said, testing is, it's not always the most pleasant thing to do for SIBO and it's very, very limited. And again, it's just hyper focusing on the one problem, not the body as a whole, you know, mind, body, spirit, which is really what it takes to heal things like SIBO. And again, there's pro- if you have SIBO, there's probably other things going on. So, you know, we want to look at things as a whole. So mm-hmm. typically the top three initial considerations that I would suggest for somebody is, again, finding a nutritional plan that eats to reduce inflammation for you, mm-hmm. which is that you cannot Google eat. How do I eat to reduce inflammation? You'll get answers. But they eat kale they, are, <laughs> they may not be the right answer for you because you know oh gosh like don't eat you know red meat and fat and all those things like no because yeah like l- l- lots of plants are typically very much recommended for that which for some people with SIBO is a disaster mm-hmm. um so you got to eating through disinflammation is very bio individual that's you know why i try to present many options to clients you know the the educational piece and then put our brains together to come up with where they feel like they want to start. And then we can readjust at any point, you know, if, Mm -hmm. if it's not really working out well for them. So that's really important. Number one step, because you, you know, nutrition is not everything. Cause like you always say, you know, it's not just the food, right? It's how we're Mm -hmm. digesting it, which can be impacted by a lot of things, but it's important. Like we can't continue to, have fermentation happening in the small intestine and be able to heal in the way that we want to heal. So right. that's kind of we got to calm that down, we got to reduce inflammation, we got to stop feeding all of the bugs that are going on and all of that stuff. Um number 2 is kind of optimizing stomach acid as well as bile production because bile insufficiency can be another another bit of a factor there. Um, but then you know, even that is well. Why am I not producing enough stomach acid, or why do I have bile insufficiency? So bile is made by the liver, stored in the gallbladder. So you don't have to have your gallbladder taken out. And you don't necessarily have to be diagnosed with stones or even have pain in like that area to have bile problems. So mm-hmm. those are important things to consider. And then the other big thing is to calm your nerve, working on calming your nervous system down or getting it right in more of a regulated state, right? And Mm -hmm. being able to increase your vagal tone. Like those would kind of be Mm -hmm. the things that should happen even potentially first before Mm -hmm. diving into, I mean, there are herbal, you know, supplements and things like that. But again, there's no like one protocol to do. Right. So that's where like I would use energy testing to try to, you know, pick products, pick dosing. Is it safe? To even do supplements, because that's the thing we rely heavily on supplements. I don't know about you, but I've had people come to me with spreadsheets, yeah, of supplements that they're on, and like yeah. a woman is literally swallowing like sixty pills a day, yeah. And too many supplements in the wrong kinds not only can stress out your nervous system, but can continue to fuel inflammation in the gut. So, yeah, less is more. Agreed. In the beginning, but typically throughout, less is more. If you're working on the foundational things, you really probably shouldn't need a large amount, you know, of of supplements. You want to use them smartly and strategically. You could be setting yourself up for more problems. And I think sometimes too, you know, unfortunately, we use supplements because they're easy. Mm -hmm. It's easy to order them. It's can be easy to take them, and then we avoid doing some of the deeper work that we need mm-hmm. to do, um, right? but, you know, those are really key things. Yeah. You know, when it
0: comes to the supplements, one of the things that I try to encourage people to consider is especially capsules, right? The, the form and the bioavailability of what we're taking mm-hmm. is so important. And yeah. for many people, like you mentioned, the lady who was on 60 something different things I think for me, the most I ever had was a woman who was taking 42 different supplements at one time. And this person had been working with a naturopath for quite some time and just continued to compile supplements to the regimen. And when I had suggested removing supplements, it was like, (gasps) no, I can't. And then I, you know, I said, but let's, you know, you're you're taking forty-two different medicine or supplements, many of them are one to three capsules per thing. We know there is a lot of unfortunate practices in the supplement industry, especially pertaining to capsule use and what the capsules yeah. are made out of, just due mm-hmm. to trying to, you know, reduce cost and and increase profit. Yeah. And uh, these capsules could be just the thing that's sitting there allowing the fermentation to occur. It's like a gel. They're like, they, they condense to a gel that just sit there. And so um, that's another thing I I always encourage individuals, like, let's at least try to reduce as many of the capsules. Let's look at what Mm -hmm. we can do bilingually or intravenously initially in its bioavailable form to help reduce any of that deficiency and get us on the right track before we start
1: piling that stuff on. So a lot of those capsules are cellulose, right? Cellulose. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, you got it. So I'm curious
0: to hear your thoughts and opinion about this, because if we've got all this bacteria that's sitting in the small intestine, it's fermenting, these pathogens are creating neurotoxins that are then traveling up the vagus nerve and interacting with our brain and our mood and our thoughts and all of the things. But when a person starts to go to a detox, right, where we're minimizing the food sources that are contributing to this problem we also have to take that into consideration because as these toxins are dying off as these bacteria and pathogens are dying off they're Mm -hmm. also releasing toxins into the bloodstream that were stored in it and this can contribute to some really negative physical outcomes And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times this itself can be what keeps a person from staying consistent with that protocol, right? Right, yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about that
1: yeah. I mean, I think, it, you know, case by case, but like, I really don't feel like if someone is doing something that they're getting a very strong detox reaction, you're probably doing too much too fast. Mm-hmm. And I understand like people want these things fixed and they want them fixed now, but mm-hmm. you're potentially creating more inflammation, more stress on the body, which isn't going to, it. The, going faster doesn't yield faster results. <laughs> so yes. It, Yes, It just doesn't. So I typically say back off first. So like if you're taking supplements, either stop them, reduce them, take them less frequently, give yourself Mm -hmm. breaks, like whatever your practitioner, you know, advises on that. Because I've, I've run into people where it's like, well, my, I told my doctor, I was, you know, reacting to this and they just told me keep going because it means it's working. I -hmm. think that's a terrible strategy. So, and then if you're, if you're like doing maybe a diet and having a lot of die off, like, again, maybe you went a little too hard. Maybe you need Mm -hmm. to ease into it a little bit more. So that's part of it. I also think it's really important to acknowledge the fact that emotional regulation is a huge help when we're detoxing because the nervous system, if the nervous system doesn't feel safe more often than not, you know, systems can't work well, including detoxification. Mm Mm-hmm. But we can't force those things. So continuing to really rest, work on emotions, trauma, you know, all of those those types of things. Very key. We cannot avoid those things as much as we sometimes try. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, I usually recommend some sort of detox tool. There's lots of different ones out there. I think sweating is one of the best kind of detox supports we have. And I'm not talking sweat from exercise. It has to be like a rested sweat. Um, so maybe mm-hmm. that's even, like, a hot bath, as hot as you can handle mm-hmm. if you don't have the funds to, like, get a sauna or go to a sauna or anything like that. And you can even put, you know, minerals in there, some Epsom salt in there. You know, some people put baking soda in there and things. That can also be a bit of, like, a detox kind of bath support mm-hmm. in that instance. Minerals are very key in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so make sure you're getting them. Those are a great way to get some topical um those types of things and then i mean there's always potentially binders and things like that there's lots of different types you know again not really a one-size-fits-all type thing um Mm -hmm. but again we don't want to just rely on oh well i don't have to do all these other things if i take a binder like we want to be able to support all of those areas the best we can right
0: So I'm really glad that you brought that up and you made the suggestion or recommendation around sweating that isn't inclusive of exercise. Mm -hmm. I know for myself, this has been one of the more challenging things to have patience and compassion around is the fact that for the last almost 16 months now, I haven't really had the ability to have any kind of physical activity, just walking up and down the steps, my aura ring is logging that as did you just do a workout because right. I'm so short of breath and, and right. there's so many dysregulated components that are occurring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if I was under the mindset, I got to force myself to sweat it out and exercise. All I would be doing would be accelerating more catabolism of my body. I would not be putting myself into any, favorable state to actually address the healing that needs to occur. So right. can you talk a little bit about this, why this is so important? And this is a really hard thing for people to wrap their their head around. What do you mean less is more? What do you mean? I've been told I have to exercise if I want to be healthy. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, exercise. I I, always, I actually prefer the term movement. Than uh, same, same. Same. Because to me, that's more realistic of our goal. Like we don't Mm -hmm. want to be couch potatoes and things like that for sure. But like, I also don't feel that we need to go to the gym and work as hard as we can and do all these mass cardio things for hour plus most days of the week, because Mm -hmm. exercise is a form of stress. Mm -hmm. It can be a good stress in the right situation, you know, where it's hormesis. So it's, it's stressing out the body. So the body has a chance to increase resiliency, but problem is, is everybody is chronically stressed all the time. And now we're adding all of this exercise, this hard exercise in Mm -hmm. frequent exercise in, and, you know, really it should be more, how do I get movement in, in, and gentle Mm -hmm. movement. And I, now that I'm in my forties, I don't, I no longer cardio. (laughs) I, I gave that up many years ago, but I focus on strength training, you know, building muscle as, especially as we age, very important. So I like, you know, Mm -hmm. building muscle and then like I'll, I'll walk a lot or do low yoga. Stretching is amazing, you know, um, and it gives you a chance to, you know, work on breathing, which is massively important as well. Hugely. Your breath is the number one regulator of your nervous system, Mm -hmm. right? And, and yeah. 80 plus percent of people are not breathing correctly. So like yeah. I want to focus on those things. And some people might say, oh, but all this exercise is what helps me relieve stress, which I can understand. But I'm like, but you have to also understand it is a stress. Right. And like. I, yeah. And
0: and these are such great things to really bring up because for myself over since getting diagnosed with COVID and having to ease into this. I've had to really focus on the somatic activated healing techniques and practices, those modalities that allow movement, not extreme exercise. Like I said, just walking up and down the steps is, you know, Mm -hmm. me apparently doing a marathon according Mm -hmm. to my body. Mm -hmm. Um, But breathing, movement, that affirmation piece, that, you know, along with that meditation, that's where I've had to invest my energy to set myself up for success with even being able to heal. Right post-COVID, when I went into kidney failure, after having been able to put that kidney disease into remission for more than 28 years, that was really frightening. It was a huge wake-up call, and I recognized in order for the kidneys Cause then it impacts the, then liver starts to fail. I'm like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. I got my blood work and I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. Like I have never in my life seen anything of this nature. And so for most people, a lot of the approaches that they would take would just be contributing to the problem rather than negating and supporting the body's ability to truly heal. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that practitioners like myself and you, It's so necessary for us to have these conversations to bring about the awareness of how nervous system plays such a key component role in our ability to truly heal and support a healthy physiology, biology, as well as a healthy um,
1: spiritual and soul state as well. Yeah. And it's a lot of times the toughest for people to acknowledge you know, because even using the word trauma, like, doesn't, oh, I didn't have trauma. You know, I grew right. up in a, a great house. My parent, I had parents, like, like, I I lived in a nice house, like, all those things. And I don't know that we've come up with a really good word, because I don't know that I love the trauma. Yeah. Does, to me, that, that definitely goes to more of the, like, really tough things yeah. that we, well, you know, I think this is where
0: we have to have conversations and destigmatize the idea of trauma, because, like you said, most people, the second they hear that word trauma, they're like,
1: "Oh no, 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 no! I had a
0: good, I had a good childhood, good childhood." Yeah. But the reality is, is every single human being whom has been birthed into this world, their very first incident with trauma was the birthing process, mm-hmm. you know. That was the very first incident where we're in this very beautiful, warm, controlled, nurtured, supported state, and then we abruptly are brought out into these bright lights, cold temperatures, poking, prodding, separation Mm -hmm. from being able to go directly to mom and be breastfed or whatever um, that means might look like. So yeah, there's not a person who hasn't experienced trauma on some level or another. Yes. So, right. absolutely. So, yeah. Unfortunately, no one escapes that, um, right. and we just have to find what better ways of uh, communicating it in a way that might, you know, resonate with with individuals um, instead yeah. of scare them.
1: Yeah. And, <laughs> instead of scare. And them. that's the thing is, I think people don't need to know exactly where their trauma came from per se. Right. Like, we, it's how has it shown up in our lives? Like, how has it created habits and thought? patterns. And like, that's, that's the stuff you have control over. You don't have control over where it came from, you know, so much. So, right. Well, I know, and
0: and this can be a slippery slope when we're, you know, uh, attempting like talk therapy as a way to go all the way back and identify every single Mm -hmm. traumatic incident that has ever occurred every time we talk about that experience, our body cannot differentiate between whether or not we're talking about the past or it's actually happening to us right now. It just perceives, Ooh, there is a threat. I must respond. So in my opinion, I, you know, Knowing that they exist and then being able to see how these have impacted your behavior and be able to take that information and do something productive with it is most important, not necessarily having to recall every single detail, every single experience.
1: Yeah, much more traumatizing for many For many, yeah, absolutely. But for many of
0: us, we're so addicted to our nervous system that it gives us the absolute fix that we are looking for and just continues to perpetuate that cycle and uh, negative feedback loop. So I work work a lot with individuals suffering, you know, mental health and substance abuse. And I tell them all the time, like, yo, your addiction, it's your nervous system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not the substance. It's not the food. It is your nervous system response, and if that's all it's ever known, then that is its state of safe and alive. It doesn't know good or bad, it only knows safe and alive. And so, really trying to get individuals to understand the significance of that can be really challenging because it goes against so much of what we've been taught,
1: right? And like, it's like, oh, but you know, as a dietitian, why are you telling me about? limbic system, trauma loops. And like, isn't, aren't I here just to learn how to eat and like, I can kill bugs and like, go on my way. Like, you know, why? Oh my God.
0: I'm so freaking glad that you are bringing this up because I recently got reprimanded. Okay. Because I showed a documentary. Um, I am a huge fan of Dr. Gabor Mate. I just uh-huh. believe the work he is doing. Oh yeah. <laughs> I am just a huge fan of him. And so I purchased the licensure rights to be able to show his documentary. Mm-hmm. And so I was showing his documentary at one of my facilities, and I ended up getting a phone call later that day. And they were like, hey, you're a dietitian. You're supposed to talk about what they should and should not eat. Right. And I was like, well... That's great and all, but here's the problem. They already know what they should and should not eat. Don't we think we need to really get to the root of why they continue to keep perpetuating the same behavioral patterns and how all of this is connected? Like we we're so silly if we think that we can compartmentalize it because we can't. It's all intercorrelated.
1: Well, yeah. And I would argue it's like the brain is the start of the digestive process which has breaks down your food so guess what yeah. it's inhaling yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, I I definitely defended myself and um, definitely, you know, helped the individual see my perspective and how there is so much value in this piece of the education process for them to then want to take the action to be more mindful about the foods that they do put into their body pertaining to what their nervous system regulation looks like and why, Right.
1: Right. And that's another point I love to really reiterate for people is like, it's nobody's job to fix you. It's nobody's job to tell you exactly you need to do a B C D E F G mm-hmm. go off and do it. Like we got to take a hundred percent responsibility. We, you know, we can only learn to become our own best self healers and use other people as mentors and guides on that journey and finding somebody who really resonates with you and who's very supportive of you and is, you know finding someone who you know it feels right Mm -hmm. and if your goal is to truly heal and get on the other side of this long term you know you want someone again who's gonna be outside of just labs and supplements and you know one size fits all thing i think people are tired getting tired of that Absolutely. I'm tired of spending money on labs. I don't want to take fistfuls of more supplements. Like what Mm -hmm. else is there? It's the whole, I've tried everything, Mm -hmm. you know, but then there's this Mm -hmm. whole, whole truly holistic piece that they've completely either missed or haven't really spent enough time and energy on.
0: Right. Yeah. So real quick, before I let you go, I do want to ask you this. I'm curious as to what your opinion is based on the latest research that was released. And I think it was the American Medical Association that released a statement around childhood obesity and how the solution is to promote medication and surgeries at very young age. Did you (laughs) see this?
1: I didn't. I, I... I gotta say, I try to, you know, focus on the things that don't stress me out as much. (laughs) Oh, geez. So, yeah, Um, it it just really rocked my world to see
0: this being the blanket statement across the board for the approach to address childhood obesity. Yeah. You know, the fact that we're completely uh, you know not in, even taking into consideration any more lifestyle factors yeah. and we're just going straight right. to medication right. and surgery is quite right. frightening.
1: Well, and the thing I'd say with medication, I'm not, you know, anti-medication. You know, there's times and places and mm-hmm. things like that, but we also have to understand Absolutely. That most cases medications are again meant for short-term use and there none of them come without side effects or consequences including depleting right. nutrients and things like that but sometimes taking medic certain medications for too long can further drive this function deeper into the cells and mm-hmm. um so we have to be very conscious uh you know and again we're looking for quick fixes sometimes and you know but what at what cost and then the mm-hmm. whole thing with surgery and like bariatric surgeries and things like that again there could very well be a time and a place for those things like is it do I save my life or do I not you know mm-hmm. have the surgery but you know I personally have had a handful of clients over the years that have a history of those types of surgeries and their guts are wrecks they're deficient of yep. the wazoo like even uh I was reading the other day about like oxalates you know, which could be considered like Mm -hmm. a plant toxin or whatever, and that those with like bariatric surgery tend to absorb those things at a faster rate, you know, than someone with a Mm. normal digestive tract and things like that. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't, it's not going to solve, I mean, there's plenty of people who've had surgeries and are on medication that still struggle with health and that are still struggling right. with weight, you know, because th- those things can get stretched and whatnot, because it's deeper than all of that. The mm-hmm. reason, like, Absolutely. You, you know, yeah. educating them, working on their mental, emotional health, like, you know, those types of things, um, you know, are key and, uh. I Absolutely. can <laughs> begin to wrap well, my
0: head on that. I know. And in in my professional experience as well, majority there might be a handful of clients that have had um some form of gastric bypass surgery mm-hmm. that I would say at least, I would say 80% of them regret it. Wish that they would have never done it because in the end, it didn't really help them. They're still overweight. They're still struggling with all of their, you know, disordered eating behaviors. They have all kinds of imbalanced metabolics due to lack of absorption and... And so it can really be problematic. And I know for myself, it was just frightening to see that this is the blanket statement and approach that, you know, we're trying, that they're wanting us to embrace as the solution. And I just can't get on board with that.
1: Unfortunately, it sounds like there's a lot of money in that.
0: Yeah,
1: right. I know. Medicines and surgeries.
0: Yeah. and. And then we can think about how that will contribute to disruption of hormone production and how that will contribute to infertility issues later on down the line. And right. that in itself is a very, very costly pathway to have to go down. So, yeah, well, yeah, so, yeah.
1: well, chronic, chronic issues isn't cheap either. No, it sure isn't.
0: It sure isn't.
1: Well, Sarah, it has been such a pleasure to have you here today
0: to have this conversation and bring about some awareness when it comes to things like SIBO and, and everything, energy and nutrition, you know, nervous system regulation related. How can the audience find you?
1: So, I, uh, I spend a lot of time, well, largely more amount of my time on Instagram. So, I'm the organic dietitian on Instagram. Um, and that is also the name of my website. And I have a uh, one-on-one program, but also I have a Heal Your Gut for Good group program as well in how I work with clients. And I'm excited because this year I'm also partnering up with one of my mentors um, and starting to navigate the world of of teaching and supporting fellow practitioners as they either start a wellness business or... Increase a wellness business and learn how to become a truly holistic trauma informed practitioner. So, through a training wellness program. So, I'm excited to start that journey.
0: That's exciting. Well, congratulations to you. I truly believe in the work that you're doing and appreciate your service so much. Um, I just adore you. Please follow her on Instagram. She is so insightful and she. Your delivery of stuff is just, uh, you do it in a way that, you know, how can you not love it? So thank you for everything that you do. It truly is uh, making an impact on the world. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Think Yourself Healthy podcast. Do me a favor. And if you loved this episode, please go leave a review. Reviews help make sure that this content reaches more people so that we can continue to heal as a collective. Remember to take a screenshot that you're listening and tag us on Instagram at Heather Barbieri RDN for a 15% discount on the Retrain Your Brain program. See you next time.